0: So I think $177 billion, they say is his net worth, that if he were to spend $20 every minute for the rest of his life, he would not spend all that money for oh, That was it, that was the 177. He's so rich that if he were to spend $20 every minute for the rest of his life, it would take him 177 years to spend all the money he has. And that same person is has employees protesting, because they can't get protective equipment during this whole coronavirus thing. And the outrage of it all is that the system is set up for it to be that way. The company is subsidized by the United States government. So they're getting tax money to stay in business. They're not paying anything in taxes because of how it's set up and getting richer and richer and richer while the uh, employees struggle and even get fired if they even speak out against it. So, um, that's the system we have here in the United States, and um, so Jesus is saying here that the guy, the rich man, has to unload those riches. Uh, and it doesn't say that he needs to be poor. He's saying distribute to the poor. So it doesn't mean make yourself poor in doing it, but it does mean don't hoard it all for yourself. Um, but when he heard when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. So there you have it. The, Ruler was indeed very, very rich, and he became sorrowful at the thought just the thought. No one's actually touched his money yet, no one's actually forced him to distribute anything yet or share his riches yet at all. But he became very sorrowful at even the thought of having to share his riches with the poor. It's insane, but it's reality, it's how people are. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God! So, um. Uh, Some preachers will try and tell you um, that he's not talking about riches gained. um, uh, He's not talking about riches gained by um, uh, hard work or whatever. He said riches. So he didn't say how he got it and didn't say the ruler got it in any unrighteous way. It's the fact. And so I don't think it's the fact. uh, You can't just uh, uh, throw in there that it's because of covetousness or that he's taken this money from anyone or he's gained it wrongfully. He may have inherited it. Doesn't say But what it does say, rich, if you have those kind of riches, share them and distribute them to the poor. Because it just doesn't make sense any other way. So um, Jesus is saying it's hard for someone who's rich to get into heaven. Um, for it is easier for a camel to go through the, a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And some preachers will twist this to say he's talking about a needle gate. That's not what he said at all. And you know that's not what he's talking about. Because it's not that hard to enter a needle gate. Like you say, unload the camel and you get in. That's not that hard at all. But what is hard, what would be seemingly impossible is for a giant camel to go through a tiny needle's eye, which is what he said. So with regular Christianity, you can't focus on what you want to believe. You can't focus on what preachers tell you. You have to focus on what Jesus actually said. And what he's saying is just as impossible as it is for a rich person, uh, for a camel to go through a needle's eye, which is super tiny, it's just that hard for someone rich to get into heaven. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? So the um, the people hearing it think, well, if someone's rich, they've gotten it because God's blessed them to be that way. And that's another sign that the person probably isn't a gangster or some sort of criminal to get his riches. Because if he were, the people there would have recognized that. They would have been like, oh, well, he's only rich because he's a fill in the blank. Um, But instead, they're thinking that the rich man, the ruler, must certainly be blessed by God because he's rich. And that would be a sign of your being blessed. You can see that with a lot of prosperity preachers nowadays who will tell you that um, riches are a gift from God which I believe actually they are. Being rich is can be a blessed thing if you distribute it to the poor, if you use those riches, your wealth, your your um, status, for a good purpose. And you can see this in um, in the fact, like the recent whole stimulus package, how $2 trillion, just like that, are made up to give out to companies in a country that's supposedly uh, capitalist, where it's survival of the fittest or you go under, Instead, $2 just like that, is um, cooked up to distribute, to save them, to help them. And they're going to be the first in line to get it. But that's not the only example of it. You can think recently um, when um, there was a church in Europe that burned down um, catastrophic fire. And would you believe in one day, one day, a billion dollars was raised. $1 billion was raised in one day by people contributing to that church being, uh, recovered. So when people say there's no money for reparations, there's no money for the poor, there's no money for social benefits, but there's money for corporate welfare. There's money to build a church. Um, there's money. It's just a matter of just like the rich man, a willingness to spend it where it should go or being sorrowful and holding on to it. And that's generally where most people who call themselves cap- call themselves capitalists are, They say they're capitalists, but if they ever need help, they expect it, and they don't mind taking it at all. But if you need help, then they look down on you and they call it welfare. But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So Jesus is saying, yeah, it's very difficult um, for a rich person to get into heaven, just as difficult as it would be for a camel to go through a needle's eye. But he's saying it's impossible with men, but with God, all things are possible. So I think what he's saying there is, if you do the godly thing with your um, riches or your uh, means, then it's absolutely possible for you to get into heaven. But you have to do the godly thing with it. And what was the godly thing? He says, sell what you have and distribute to the poor. That's the godly thing. You heard it directly from his mouth. Then Peter says, see, we've left all and followed you. So one of the disciples, Peter, um, the one who denies him three times just before the crucifixion, is... um, Basically saying, Lord, you know, we've given up everything. We're following you. What are we going to get for it? So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Who's going to continue? Who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. So Jesus is saying, don't expect when you make that sacrifice that you're going to end up poor also, excuse me, with the people you're trying to help out he's saying just the opposite you're going to get all those things and more um including the kingdom of god by following him and doing as he says and he's saying the fact that you're willing to put all those things second to seeking what god would have you do is um the sign and the the basically your sure your surety that you're going to make it then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished. So um, Jesus is about to give them um, a prediction that he's going to be killed, um, you know, crucified and everything. That does a couple of things that should let us know. One, that he's, the real deal because he's able to tell us something, tell them something that's going to happen in the future. And then as we read, we're going to see it does actually happen. So that's one thing. But then also that knowing that that was going to happen, that didn't deter him from going ahead with his mission. So, um, another reason to believe for, he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. So not only is he going to be, he's, he's telling he's going to really be dragged. That's what he's about to go through. And again, he's letting them know this before it even happens so that it'll affirm their faith, just like it should affirm our faith. And like I said, I know everyone, um, some people don't even believe Jesus existed, though uh, there's historical um, records of it, like with the Acts of Pilate, Pilate being a ruler in um, ancient times um, in the from the Roman Empire. Um, so there's actual documentation of his existence, whether you believe in his divinity or not. But at the same time, there's some people who don't believe he existed at all. But Jesus is saying, "This is what's going to happen. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be insulted and spit on, and they will scourge him and put him to death. And the third day, he will rise again." So he's even predicting his death, but also his resurrection. And you could imagine how that would be hard for anyone to understand. The death, uh, the prediction itself, would be tough for a lot of people to believe because people, some people, most people, don't believe that's possible anyway. But then also to predict your death, that'd be doubly harder to believe, excuse me. Because you would think, well, if you know that your death is waiting on you, if you know death is waiting for you in Jerusalem or wherever you're going, if you just take a general example, if you know, say like if somebody tells you, if you go to Spain, you're going to die. And I just use that because you see the headlines. 10,000 people um, plus have died in Italy so far from this um, coronavirus. And um, like 800 just died like in 24 hours um, in Italy and in Spain. So um, but if someone tells you if you go there, you're going to die. Most people would say, well, if you know that that's what's going to happen, then why would you go there? So that'd be doubly hard to believe for the for the disciples to believe that. Um, that prediction and then triply hard to believe that he's gonna rise again That's probably the toughest thing to believe they could probably believe he's gonna be persecuted Maybe even killed because they've seen him um, seen the crowds try and stone him before Try him throw him over a cliff before over his teachings So it might be easier for them to believe that someone's gonna try and kill him But it'd be tougher for them to believe that he's gonna rise again because how often do you see somebody who's died get up again but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not know the things which were spoken. So um, that part isn't in red letters. So it's not um, Jesus saying that they didn't understand it. It's the narrator, the author, whoever's writing this saying that they didn't understand it. And basically, um, and saying it was hidden from, them. I can't really believe it was hidden from because Jesus shared it with them. Why would he share something with them that he's hiding from them? But again, they didn't get It's basically the point. What I think is the point of that um, verse then it happened that as he was coming uh, near Jericho, to a certain blind man sat by the road begging and hearing a multitude passing by. He asked what it meant. So um, Jesus is on the move on the road and um, there's a blind person begging. And wondering what's going on, what's all the commotion about. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So, um, and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So um, apparently the person, the blind man had already heard about Jesus's reputation because he knew that he had power to have mercy on him him and help him. So he immediately started crying out for help, Um, even though he was blind. And then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. And he cried out all, all, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So they were warning him to be quiet, partly because the religious people are after Jesus. Like I said, they've tried to stone him before. They've tried to throw him off a cliff before. And now Jesus has even said that they're going to kill him. And um, not just kill him, but mock him, and insult him, spit on him and all of that. And beat him with, the scourging is basically being beaten with a whip. Um, so they're trying to tell him keep it down be cool, keep it quiet There's there are haters among them, so they're trying to tell the guy to quiet down but he's crying out all the more for help, because he needs help, he wants his vision back, and when he says son of David that's basically referring to um, an Old Testament prophecy that um, from the line of David, in case you don't know, David is an Old Testament uh, king written as um, credited with uh, the book of Psalms, um, among other um, writings in the Old Testament, although it's not likely he wrote all the Psalms, but he's credited with them, basically. And so that's who David is. If you know the story of David and Goliath, that's the David he's referring to. And one of the prophecies in the Old Testament was that through the lineage of David, that's how the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And so the blind man is recognizing through apparently what he's heard about what Jesus has done, because he couldn't have seen it, he's blind, but he's heard about Jesus' reputation enough that he's willing to cry out for help to him as he hears he's passing by. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him. So um, the guy is getting his moment with God, he's getting his um, time with Jesus, some FaceTime. And he's, Jesus is asking him, Jesus is telling him, um, you know, what does he want? Saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. So, I, again, the thing to notice there, I think, is that even though the man is blind, people all, all around there recognize that he's blind and he's begging. Um, Jesus doesn't assume that that's what he wants and that's what he's after. Maybe he has a stomachache or maybe he wants to ask for money. Maybe he wants to ask for a wife. Maybe he wants to ask for a house. Jesus doesn't assume anything. He asks him, what does he want? Which is kind of nice. I mean, when you think about how marginalized people are treated, um, including disabled people, handicapped people, are treated less than. It's really a shame um, that that's how people are. But Jesus is saying, Jesus is treating him just like he would anyone else. He's asking, well, what is it you want? Not assuming anything. Um, So, of course, the blind man says he wants his sight back. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. So this is an, instant when, um, an instance when Jesus says um, that it's the faith that actually caused the person to receive what it is they were looking for. Um, uh, not necessarily his compassion, which he does have for people, but it was the blind man's faith. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So the blind man received his healing. He got his blessing just like that um, for the asking. Jesus granted it to him. And that actually concludes this reading. I hope it was a blessing for you, and I appreciate you checking it out. And I hope you'll join me again, God willing, as always. Um, Saturday night after midnight, um, Sunday morning, we'll pick up where we left off in Revelation. And God willing, next Wednesday sometime, we'll do more of Luke. Peace. Thanks for checking me out. Welcome to The Naked Truth. As always, if you arrived expecting to see nudity, you came to the right person, just go to my website, hungtgirl.com. You can click on the pictures there. There are free videos that I upload and update every week. Um, Feel free to check out the the, um, other side of me, as it were. You can see um, how to get a membership, a subscription, make a donation, or just check out the free stuff. Uh, Like I said, it's updated every week. I put part of what I do, what we do here um, there also, so feel free to check out those lessons also at the Living Water Chapel and the Naked Truth links there on my site. Um, so that's the site, um, and that's that side of the nudity. But if you um, know what we do here, we actually go over the Gospel of Jesus Christ chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's called Red Letter Christianity, basically, where that's what you focus on, giving Jesus the last word when it comes to what you should believe as a Christian. So um, and as always, you may not know it, but in the Bible, Jesus's words are only in truly in four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the letters in red. Um, And then there's a little bit sprinkled in Acts in the Acts, which comes after the Gospels. And then there's uh, Revelation, which is also attributed to Jesus, but it's kind of specious as far as its author's origin. It's not believed to actually be John the Apostle or John the Baptist, but some other John, but it's unknown, but it does have some red letters in it. So that's what we go through, go over on um, Saturday night, Sunday mornings. But since it's Wednesday, we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Luke. And um, we were in the book of Luke chapter 17. So um, just a quick recap of what happened there. Jesus warns us that it's uh, very dangerous to offend, in other words, hurt or harm or mislead uh, young people, children, little ones. And I don't think he means just little kids, although that's what he used in the reference there. I think he means false teachings as far as any of his um, children, his followers, and um, misleading them with false teachings, especially when you know they're not real. So That's how Luke 17 started out. Then it went into... um, Basically, faith and duty, which is would be, when people do what they're an example would be, um, well, well, let's go. What he said: the disciples were um, asking Jesus uh, to increase their faith and about what kind of reward they would get. Um, and Jesus was saying, when you do what you're supposed to do, um, you don't expect to thank you. You're doing what you're supposed to do anyway. Um, it's sort of like how if you want to think about how this term is overused a lot nowadays, calling people heroes. And some of the things people do are absolutely heroic. But I mean, just in um, when you think about it objectively, when you see firefighters or police officers or even military people or um, uh, rescuing people, or if you see um, things like that, if you see things like that happen, they're wonderful, good things that people do. but that's not really heroic because they're being paid to do that. They're being compensated to do that. So it isn't really heroic unless someone does something altruistically freely with no incentive of their own, no um, nothing to that they're going to get out of it. So so like if a stranger walking by, excuse me, and um, sees someone in need and helps them, like even a broken down car or a beggar on the streets needing something, that's what's heroic because you're doing something you're not, being compensated to do, not compensated in a physical sense as in a worldly sense, but you'll be compensated for it in a spiritual sense. God sees those things, but um, that's not to minimize what um, our military does, what uh, people in uniform do, not at all, not to minimize that at all. Just saying that's not really heroic and it takes bravery to do those things, but it's not really um, being a hero if you're being paid to do those things, you're really just doing your job. And that's what Jesus is saying here, um, that yeah, you if you follow his instructions and do what you're supposed to do, that's wonderful, that's good, but don't expect praises and thanks for what you're doing, what you're supposed to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. After that, um, Jesus went into, um, and um, he performed the healing of 10 different people with uh, disease, leprosy. And um, only one of the people turned back to say, even say thank you. And um, Jesus didn't take back the blessings. At least it doesn't say that he did and caused them to be cursed again just because they didn't say thank you. Instead, like he just preached, that it's your duty to do what you're supposed to do, um, to do the right thing. Similarly, he went on, he let them have the healing, but he pointed out that only one person turned back to say thank you. And it wasn't one of the ones you would think it would be. It wasn't one of the people who were of the um, the um, group who you would expect to be pious and religious and um, appreciative and show it. It was instead a foreigner, so that sort of goes to the message of today, where people villainize foreigners who are just looking for asylum, um, not breaking any law, and people still villainize them. They're treated horribly, put in cages, and um, even denied entry when they're just looking for help. So um, you can kind of see that. we reap what we sow because now America leads the world in at least reported cases of the coronavirus and um, there's not a whole lot of people lining up to help us but you know it's a cooperative effort around the world that you know it may help a little wake people up and realize we're all in the same boat no matter what color you are, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your sexual preference is no matter what your religion is we're all in the same boat. The disease does not see any of that stuff. Anyway, so that's what happened in 17. Um, and then Jesus gave signs of what would to look for, um, before his coming. And, um, that'd be the second coming of Christ. Um, and we basically went over how a lot of preachers will confuse, try to confuse you with the different signs that Jesus says to look for. And, um, truly Luke 17 was, um, probably, like I said before, one of the most pivotal, pivotal, excuse me, pivotal uh, chapters in my life because it helped me realize that just because the Old Testament says um, a man shall not lie with another man, and then just because uh, Paul in the New Testament condemns it also, again, give Jesus the last word. Jesus said very clearly that before, when the end comes, he's referring to when the end comes, I'm paraphrasing, that two men will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. That's Luke 17, 34. So even though the Old Testament says that it's abominable for a male to lie with another male, Jesus is letting us know as Christians, that's not what's going to be the deciding factor. That's even then with two men in one bed and then even follow it, two women will be grinding together. that One of them will be taken and one will be left. So don't let people condemn you because of your sexual preference as far as uh, same-sex stuff goes. Because... That's just not something that's Christian. So anyway, um, that's how Luke 17 went. If you like, grab your Bible. We're going to pick up with Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And if you don't happen to have your Bible handy, you can just um, listen. And either way, be blessed. Um, and I'm still learning this whole Twitch platform, but God willing, I'll figure it out and how to maybe um, put the words up here so that you can see them as I read them, just in case you don't have your Bible. So pray for me on that. So anyway, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable of them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So um, basically, be persistent, be diligent, don't give up. Uh, saying, there was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. You can kind of think about this as um, some of the rulers of the world nowadays. They're not very uh, godly. They don't care about... they. They couldn't quote you a Bible verse. They don't live that. They think it's, you know, not something for them, which is not just leaders, but a lot of people believe that. But um in this case, Jesus is giving us a parable of someone in power who doesn't regard God and doesn't think much of people either. Um now there was a certain widow. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him seeking, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. So you can think about this as someone who's basically going to court. And asking for relief from a judge. Um, and she's a widow. So when you think about a widow in the Bible, it generally means that they've lost their husband to some sort of war or something, and the woman um is left to fend for herself. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear nor regard man, and you see I left the word out there because obviously I do fear God or I wouldn't be doing this um this um this but so the the judge doesn't fear god and he doesn't think anything of man either he's uh yet because this widow troubles i will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me so he's saying here that a judge and if you want to think about it you can think about uh the really um testy uh, judge that's on tv she's been on tv like 20 years now and you can see how she is with people. Um, She'll tell people quick that she doesn't want to hear them tell her about God, and she will get them together quickly too if they say the wrong thing. And this is actually probably her, I think her last season of being on TV. And, but you could think about her as an example. And and her being testy like that kind of doesn't make much sense unless she's in some sort of dealing with something we don't know, which all of us are. But when you think about someone who makes basically $50 million a year to do forty-seven to only work 47 days out of the year. That's a whole lot of money for um, less than two months worth of work. Not that she's not entitled to it. Obviously, she is. That's what she's getting. But you can think about it that way. Someone who's already got theirs in power, not thinking about God and not thinking about man either. Not saying that that's how she is, and um, but just saying that's how the judge in this example is. So, has no, the point being, the judge there has no incentive to um, lean in and um, help. He's already got his. Um, yet, because the widow troubles him, he's willing to go ahead and act for it. So, it's not because he's concerned with justice or making sure that uh, the woman gets what's coming to her. It's more because he's tired of her bother, bothering him and nagging him that he's going to go ahead and administer justice for it. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. So he's showing us an example here and he's saying, listen to what the unjust judge said. And again, I'm not saying that the one I was just using as an example on TV is unjust. Although if you do watch her show sometimes, and I have in the past, you'll see that she, even she, though she claims to be fair, applies a double standard. You'll see where she'll see, she'll see, have one set of, uh, uh, one type of person in front of her who will answer roughly with "yeah, no, yeah, no, yes, or no, no, ma'am, nothing like that, or your honor, none of that," and she'll let it slide, won't say anything. Then she'll see someone else who will say the same thing, and she'll quickly jump on them. That's objective. You can see it yourself, even if you're if even if you're a fan, you can see it objectively if you're willing to look at the truth, and you'll see that that's how it is with her. But either way, that the judge here. It's unjust, but he's willing to go ahead and act just because the woman's nagging him. And so God's and Jesus says, "And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. So he's saying here that if humans are willing to go ahead and do what they're supposed to do, excuse me, not out of a sense of obligation or a sense of decency to do the right thing, but only because someone is nagging them. Don't we know, shouldn't we understand that God, who is um, all-knowing and hopefully fair to everyone, will act without having that happen, without having us nag him or um, constantly uh, pester him to get him to act for us and to avenge us of the wrongs that happen in our life. Um, But Jesus says, I tell you, but but don't, Overlooked the part that he says, though he bears along with them. So that part means that, say, like if I were to pray to God for um, something to happen to YouTube because they wrongly blocked me on that site, this whole platform, just trying to share what uh, the gospel says. And um, if I were to pray for that, that even though I didn't do anything in that situation, The fact is, God bears along with me and the sins that I commit and the wrongdoing I've done. So it's like he's saying there that just like he's patient, just like we expect swift justice for people who've wronged us, but sometimes it it hardly ever happens swiftly. It usually takes a long time. I think he's saying, consider the fact that just like the person we're looking toward um, who did us wrong, looking at who did us wrong and looking for something to be repaid them. Similarly, we've done wrong, and God gives us a whole lot of leeway. Usually, he doesn't sometimes it's like instantly. I've seen instant karma many times when I've done something wrong, instantly, something comes right back on me and lets me know this is happening because you did that. So, similarly, I think what he's saying here is remember that God's being patient with us too, the ones who are trying to follow him and be faithful. So, don't, um, don't, um, don't forget that. Remember that he's long suffering with us as well. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, we really find faith on the earth. So I think what he's saying that God will avenge us um, when people do do us wrong. Um, it just may not. I mean, he says speedily. And I've seen that sometimes. I've, I remember when I was in Tampa and uh, I was um, gay bashed. I guess that's. Probably a dated term, but that's what it was, but not physically, just threatened with it um, by someone who I was not interested in. And then so the very next time I saw the person, he had a gash across his neck where apparently he got the wrong person wrong and they cut his throat. But um, so I think what Jesus is saying there, God will avenge us when people do us wrong as far as people who trust in him and seek him and ask for it, but also the fact that we're constantly asking for it and constantly looking for it, and not just asking once and believing it's going to happen. Like he says, whatever things you ask, you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them asking for something repeatedly seems like you don't actually believe that you are going to receive it when you ask for it. So um, if you really believe that you received it, you really just ask once and then believe that you receive it and wait for it. Um, But uh, he's saying with the persistent widow, God will still avenge us uh, when we're persistent, but at the same time, it's probably going to be a little disappointing for God, the fact that we don't actually have very much faith that he's going to do for us like, he, like we uh, believe him to. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This is easy to see. You see self-righteous people all the time who think they're holier than that, and he's giving us a parable here. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the tax collector part is easy to, easy to understand. It's someone most people despise. And the Pharisee is basically a religious leader. Um, so you, the parable is someone who is uh, religious. And, uh, and when I say religious, that doesn't mean um, necessarily he's saved or sanctified or even right. It's just that they're religious. They do something religiously repeatedly as a ritual that's really what religion is religion doesn't necessarily have anything to do with um christianity um but in this case um it's a religious leader and a tax collector and they've both gone up to pray the pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself god i thank you that i'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector um as a if you're in the LGBT community, um, then you could probably understand this because people often look down on you and make you feel like you're less than or, you know, damn the hell or whatever, just because of who you are, not knowing anything about you. But just for that um, fact, they'll think, oh, I'm better off than you. I know you're not making it into heaven. That sort of attitude. Um, I fast twice a week. I give ties of all that I possess. So the person here, the religious person, is praying. And rather than focusing on, say, like the word of God when you're praying or praying for God's will or even like the persistent widow in the previous parable, praying for um, a balancing of the scales of vengeance on someone who's wronged you, this person is praying and listing off to God all the wonderful things that they've done as if God doesn't see it, as if God wants to hear that. But that's what a lot of people do. They point out their own self-righteousness, even to God. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this, uh, the tax collector who's despised by uh, society generally um, is actually the humble one who's there praying with humility just for forgiveness which actually is something, if you remember the Lord's Prayer, that's one of the lines there, forgive, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, so the tax collector who's despised is actually the one who, with the prayer, that makes more sense. I tell you that, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased and he humbles himself will be exalted so jesus is saying there um, a message he said before that if you're gonna lift yourself up puff yourself up make yourself out to be so grand and wonderful and fabulous you can do that uh, but at some point you're gonna be brought low um so why not take instead of uh boasting and boosting yourself up why not take the humble road and instead let someone else tell how wonderful you are or be Better yet, pray to God and thank God for the part that you've played in their life with your own uh, generosity or letting your light shine and helping them out. Wouldn't that be a better prayer for God to hear than you to stand in front of God and say, Oh, Lord, I gave a million dollars to this charity and, Oh, Lord, I helped this old lady cross the street. God doesn't want to hear you touting yourself. That's rather... Pray for forgiveness is, I believe, the point of this um this um parable and be humble. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them, but when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So um these if you picture um how people get their babies christened nowadays, um, you know, instead of submerging them for baptism, sprinkling them in water or whatever to give them a blessing. Similarly, uh people here obviously recognize. Jesus's goodness, they're bringing their kids to him, even their infants to him, just to um, get him to lay hands on them. Excuse me. And notice how the disciples responded. They didn't want the kids around, basically telling them to scram. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying Don't block anyone from trying to get to Jesus. Don't try and block anyone's way from trying to find salvation, whether even if it's a little kid, especially the little kids. And he's saying, I think he's saying um, that you have to enter. You have to have faith like a little child, like how children believe Santa Claus Claus is real. Santa Claus isn't real, but children have the faith in it and believe it like completely until they grow up and learn a little more. He's saying similarly, that um, we should have a faith, that sort of faith in him. We can't see um, the kingdom, not physically see it, but uh, although it manifests itself in different ways that happen and different things that happen throughout life, similarly, you have to have that same faith um, like a little child would to enter the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And I don't think he means as a little child as in, If you're not baptized as a little kid or if you don't find faith as a little kid, um, you know, when you're younger, that you won't get into heaven. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying you have to have the approach that a little child would basically, basically blind, blind faith that um, when it comes to God and the kingdom and salvation. And he's saying if you don't have that approach to it, um, uh, you won't get in. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So you have a ruler here, so that's someone in power, and he's approaching Jesus, um, looking for a direction himself. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. I think Jesus is saying here, he's kind of impressed that the, um, the rich person, for one, because he said before, rich people will have a hard time getting into heaven because... They've let their riches be their confidence. They've let their money be their defense. They've let their um, wealth be their uh, faith. That's where their treasure is. And that, um, so he's saying here, he's recognizing that this uh, ruler is looking for answers and even calling, recognizing his goodness. And Jesus, and I think Jesus is saying here that, yeah, he is God. And he's like, he's impressed that the, um, that the um, ruler is seeking that. And seeking the wisdom so Jesus said to him why oh um, you know the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness honor your father and your mother so we could take those one by one do not commit adultery that's um, not necessarily what you would think of as far as stepping outside of your marriage as the one that's with you um, because nowadays and even back then you can see in biblical times it wasn't it, although hypocrites nowadays will preach it's one man and one woman. It wasn't always that way. And if you're going to say things should be how they were in the beginning, then if you look back to the beginning, the patriarchs had many, many wives. It wasn't one to one ratio at all. So um, you have to at least admit, admit that either the word changes, times change, both matter, or that that's just wrong. You It, it both can't be right. It can't be oh, you're only supposed to be one man and one woman, and that's the only definition of marriage. Look through the Bible. That's not the only definition of marriage. There was one man with 12 wives or one man with four wives or one man with four wives and then um, t- uh, concubines on the side. There was a king, Solomon, 700 wives. So obviously it's not a one-to-one ratio by God's demand at all because it, also if you if the two become one and... Um, And it meant something spiritually, then how would one person possibly become one with 700 different people in heaven? That doesn't make sense at all. And again, that's not something Jesus preached. But so that's the adultery part. So adultery isn't just stepping outside of your marriage. It's basically um, breaking those vows of your marriage. So if your marriage lets you see other people or your marriage is a sexless marriage where other people are um, included in it because that's what you come to terms with that's perfectly fine. That's the conditions of your marriage. It's your terms that you've come up with. But if you break those terms, whatever they are, then yeah, that's the adultery. Um, and not just, um, well, that's the adultery. Do not murder. That's um, a, a obvious one. Although some people will um, will say this doesn't include capital punishment. It absolutely does. If you look back to Genesis after Cain killed his brother Abel before any law had even been given as far as the Ten Commandments. He um, is still considered by many churches, I think, falsely as the first murderer. Um, but if that's the case, which he did kill his brother, then Jesus, God didn't require the death penalty for him at all. He put a mark on him so that other people would recognize and not hurt him, in fact. So it's hypocritical for people nowadays to say that they're holy and religious and they're anti, they're pro-life, but they're pro-death uh, penalty. It, it's completely hypocritical. It doesn't make sense. A life is a life is a life. And you're not supposed to take it. Um, do not steal. That's an obvious one. Uh, do not bear false witness. Um, that's kind of obvious to telling lies on people or situations, because even lying on a situation the coronavirus is proof of that how dangerous that can be putting out false information about things like oh it'll be down to zero cases soon or you know foolishness things that just aren't true that's bearing false witness honor your father and your mother that's a pretty basic one too um even if you're um uh you know if you're honor your father and mother because basically that's where your life began at least in the physical sense um, and presumably they're doing their best for you. They don't always, obviously, but um, to honor them. And I guess sometimes the honor would be if they're not doing their best for you to honor them, you may need to put, your space, put space between you and them so that you don't have any dealings with them because if you do have dealings with them, you might dishonor them out of anger or frustration or, or revenge for something they've done to you because it does happen. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. So the ruler says, um, he recognizes, he's like, that's no problem. I've done all of those. So he's, um, he's kept those commandments and notice that in the old Testament, there are 10 commandments given and Jesus affirms, uh, many of them throughout the gospels. But here we have one, two, three, four, five, six of the 10 commandments that are mentioned here. Um, and there are four others like, um, I shall not covet, um, like your neighbor's property your neighbor's wife. Um, you shall not have any other gods before him. You shall not have any um, graven images, sort of like worshiping idols. So um, sh- uh, there's different, there's like four more um, that aren't mentioned here, but these are the ones that Jesus tells him that he needs to recognize and focus on um, in response to his question. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still like one thing. So all that you have, and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So the one thing that he's lacking is charity. He's um, ru- a ruler, so he's almost certainly got riches. He's got money. Um, so, And he's kept these other commandments. And this last one that Jesus tells him about um, selling what he has and giving to the poor, that's charity. That's considering your neighbor. That's loving your neighbor as yourself, which is also one of the uh, Ten Commandments also. And um, some preachers will twist this to say that he's saying that the guy was covetous and had gained all this wealth uh, by, um, um, what is it called? Um, unrighteously. He's gained it. Say like if you can, like as a, a hit man, he's gotten his money that way or something like that. But that's not what it says at all. It doesn't say that he's guilty of covetousness at all. He's, but it, He is saying that the man has plenty of money and that what he should do if he wants a treasure in heaven is um, distribute that to the poor and then come and follow me. So if you think about it in today's terms, up until...